It's a pleasure to uh, be here again. Uh, I think I was last here two years ago after uh, teaching at Vallecitos and being here. And it's good to be back. It's also um, good to be in a center, which is, uh, I believe, in the lineage of uh, Robert Aitken Roshi. And uh, he was someone I worked with a lot and was a friend. I uh, taught his son and a uh, very beloved being. Uh, anyone here know him? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm pleased to be here to explore um, what can seem like a, a weighty theme, that is the connection of our practice with, with responding to the needs and challenges of the world. And there's, there's definitely part of me that would uh, rather just be here and talk about developing concentration, <laughs> developing equanimity, you know, the fine points of the distinctions between the Thai forest tradition and Tibetan traditions of accessing awakened awareness. Right? I'd be uh, very pleased and maybe that can get integrated, all those can get integrated in some way. But this was the request really from the Albuquerque and Santa Fe Sanghas. And it is an area that I've uh, explored for some time in probably for nearly 30 years. And especially through developing training programs for people who are practitioners who are involved with social service and social change. And uh, I've done that through the uh, base program with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which we, I was involved with that for about 10 years, and also a Spirit Rock program called the Path of Engagement, which was a two-year program involving 50 people, and then uh, a nine-year um, series of programs with the uh, Saybrook Graduate School. That was an interfaith program called Socially Engaged Spirituality. And uh, during that program, we made actually um, two trips to New Mexico because we were studying, really, we had three foundations, the contemplative practices, particularly from Buddhism, the uh, indigenous, indigenous traditions of connecting with the earth and developing community, and we visited the Hemas Pueblo. We had contacts there with uh, shamans, probably some of you know Sal and Flo. Anyone know Sal and Flo in the Hemas Pueblo? Anyway, they have a pottery shop in Hemas Pueblo. And uh, then the third was the social justice traditions connected with Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And, you know, it's coming to New Mexico several times for that program. So um, my intention tonight is really to explore this, you know, large, immense, challenging area and to really open up some perspectives, some themes, some practices, and really do so with the um, spirit of uh, communal exploration and of exploring this together and really seeing what, uh, what we find, what our own experiences are, what our own questions are, what our own uh, challenges are. And I was thinking maybe just to begin by inviting you, and of course a lot of this has been catalyzed since the election, and people have different views, but I think maybe to 
ask you to reflect on yourself of some of what you've experienced. And if you could think of one word or one phrase of two or three or four words which comes to mind, won't you? Let me ask you to reflect on that right now. What comes to mind in terms of some of the themes of your own experience in the last months since the election? And just, just for now, just a silent reflection. Then I'll, I'll ask for some. Uh, people to, to speak. <clears throat> Does anyone like to share just a word or two or three words? You can just speak up, yeah. Well, for me it's been a right just, speech. Just, just one or two or three words. Right okay. speech. Right speech, yeah. Right action. Right action, yeah. Mm -hmm. Others? Chaos. Huh? Chaos. Chaos, yeah. Resistance. Resistance, yeah. Embarrassment. Embarrassment, mm -hmm. yeah. Outrage and despair. Outrage and despair. Yeah. Disappointment. Disappointment, yeah. Fear. Fear, yeah. Disbelief. Disbelief. Resolve. What? Resolve. Resolve, yeah. Denial. Denial. How many can relate to at least two or three of what those themes that were mentioned? Okay. And there are probably others that were not spoken. Um, I want to frame the talk tonight in a very traditional way. And I'm going to talk about the three areas of traditional training in Buddhist practice. And those three, as many of you know, in the Pali language are sila, samadhi, and panya. It's really a way of organizing the Noble Eightfold Path. And those uh, translate as sila, as living ethically, living with integrity. Samadhi is generally a code for meditation, even though literally it means concentration. So that would refer to concentration, insight, practice, and so on. And then uh, panya is wisdom, you know, with, with uh, the centrality of right view or wise view. And, you know, in the traditional training, these all are interwoven. Living ethically is interwoven with meditation and with wisdom. So this may be well known by each of us, but I want to frame the, the talk tonight in terms of those three areas. I thought I would start, though, with a reading from Gary Snyder. And this points to some of the ways that there can be a gap between the traditional understanding of the training and contemporary sense of uh, connecting those areas of training with responding more to the world. So this is from, this is a very uh, prescient uh, passage from his work and actually written in 1964. Listen to this published in Earth Household. Some of you probably know that book quite well. Um, historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be given facts of the human condition. 
Consequently, the major concern of Buddhist philosophy is epistemology, means how we know, and psychology, with no attention paid to historical or sociological problems. Although Mahayana Buddhism has a grand vision of universal salvation, the actual achievement of Buddhism has been the development of practical systems of meditation towards the end of liberating a few dedicated individuals. Institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self void. We need both. 1964. Okay. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path. Wisdom, prajna or panya in Pali, meditation, dhyana, coded samadhi in Pali, and morality, sila. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality, or sila, is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the community or sangha of all beings. It's a beautiful passage on, on my reading, you know, the beautiful sense of what our practice is about. And so I want to use this framework to explore some of these contemporary meanings of our practice. So I'll use, I'll, I'll use exactly those three categories, um, wisdom, meditation, uh, or actually ethics, meditation, and wisdom. I'm going to reverse the order this time. You'll, you'll see why. So I'm going to reverse the order. Um, you know, sometimes we take uh, ethics in our practice as the simplest aspect of our practice. We kind of take it for granted sometimes, you know, and just say, oh yeah, I'm ethical, I don't kill people, you know, I don't steal, you know, okay, on to meditation. And it actually can be a deep practice, but particularly in the context of contemporary needs, uh, the ethics would be the category where we ask, how do we act? And so it actually, in some ways, is quite complex. And we don't, we don't exactly know. I mean, again, give the talk, and I, I wanted to have significant time for discussion. I'm going to give the talk very much in the spirit of inquiry and exploration without any of us really, in a sense, knowing fully what to do. You know? and, and yet I want to uh, point in some directions and give some uh, perspectives. Uh, and in a sense, leave the question of how to respond as a kind of a koan that we, in the spirit of Zen, the koan being almost an unanswerable question that we keep repeating. You know, how should I respond? We can just ask that every day. <clears throat> and I think in this whole area, just to say at the beginning, it's important to have some caution about getting attached to views, right? And so I want to keep that perspective throughout the talk and discussion and 
this time that I'm here. We want to we want to look for any attachment, have that perspective. I could be wrong. I could see things differently while speaking clarity about what one sees. I'm going to try to speak clearly about seeing greed, hatred and delusion. I think that follows from our practice. So how to hold that flexibility while also not having it be a basis for just being, you know, non-committal and not really speaking out of one's practice in a, in a strong way. So I'm going to try to hold, there's kind of a tension there. Can you feel that? You know, and, you know, while, while also wanting to have there be room for every perspective, you know, and not really take partisan views. And this, this is a tricky area as a teacher, right? We want, it's important for us to make everyone feel welcome. But how do I do that while also speaking, as I was saying, identifying, oh, they, there is greed, hatred, and delusion, right? That is against our ethical commitments and so forth. So again, some of these are tensions. And I think that we, one of the ways we work with that is to really have a lot of attention to our process of exploration and discussion. Give attention to the process, give attention to, am I getting overly attached to the views? Can I really develop empathy for everyone? That's really the key, empathy, compassion, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> so, um, I'll talk uh, in order about bringing wisdom perspectives to the contemporary situation, bringing meditative perspectives to the contemporary situation, and then bringing the dimension of ethics and action. That'll be the talk. <laughs> kind of appropriate that in a in a an area of exploration that has its uncertainty, I'm sitting on a wobbly chair <laughs> that uh, we have a we have a uh, support for the wobbly part, but if I move a little bit in one direction, the support will leave and I'll become more wobbly. Okay. Of course, the wobblies are a, a great American tradition. <laughs> that wasn't planned. <laughs> okay. I'll explain that later if you want. You got to move on. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, wisdom, panya, prajna in Sanskrit, uh, traditional meaning is seeing clearly. Uh, traditional meaning, particularly, you know, maybe the most basic understanding, if we had to identify it, is seeing the uh, nature of suffering, the roots of suffering, the possibility of freedom, and the way to come to freedom. That's the synopsis of the Four Noble Truths, right? And that's the, really the essence of wisdom. Sometimes that is more developed in terms of seeing, this is in the Theravada tradition that, that we have uh, as our language. Um, we sometimes have that a little bit more refined as seeing into what are sometimes called the three characteristics. I like to speak of them, of them as the three ways of seeing that liberate. And these are seeing into impermanence, seeing into dukkha, or I like to translate dukkha as reactivity rather than suffering. You know, it's the, 
uh, grabbing hold or pushing away. Reactivity is really the issue. It's suffering is, a, to me, a very confusing translation because it obscures the way that we also um, that we grab hold as well as push away. It's the reactivity that's the problem. It's not the presence of the unpleasant. And when we translate as suffering, it's really confusing. That's, I could give a talk on that, but that's the short version. Okay. Does that make some sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, and bringing wisdom to see the larger world has not been so developed. You know, in the tradition, um, of course, commenting on social conditions occurred some in the teachings of the Buddha, but it wasn't central. I think you know that. Uh, there are passages, and there's a recent book by Bhikkhu Bodhi that brings together all the sutta passages on social issues, right? And he's done a great service in bringing those together. And there are, there are um, you know, a number of passages which show an understanding of what some of the dynamics are that cause uh, you know, inequality in relation to greed and uh, how to work with conflicts and so forth. And you might want to look at that book to get a better understanding of the traditional uh, ways. But of course, the, by and large, the main emphasis is on, is on uh, monastic training separate from engagement in the world. Right? It's not central it's not centrally developed with anything like the level of refinement and development that we have for understanding the mind, right? And so it's really something that is one of our contemporary projects. How do you see the world through Dharma eyes, right? How do you see it like that? How do you see it in connection with your practice? This is not easy, right? And there are a number of pioneers who are trying to develop that. Uh, one of them is, who's probably done the most, is my colleague David Loy, does anyone know David's work? Has David ever come to Santa Fe? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we, we've taught retreats together, and David is, has really done a beautiful job in many ways. And of course, we need you know, many more. He's a pioneer in that way. Um, and we have you know, my colleague Larry Yang is just coming out with a book called Awakening Together, Spiritual Practice of Inclusivity and Community. Uh, community. And so another pioneer. And of course, there are other people who have explored some issues to some extent. But by and large, we, we don't have really well-developed ways of bringing, like I call them, dharma eyes to see the world. You know, and people in other traditions have done this uh, to quite a large extent, not done this, but they've connected, let's say, spiritual values to how you see the world, pro probably a lot more than... Buddhists have actually. If you think of people like liberation theologians, and uh, you know a person who, who I know well, uh, Michael Lerner from the Jewish tradition, you know that they've they've developed a little more of a spiritually grounded social analysis. I think we need that in these times because otherwise we just borrow from you know very valuable secular social analyses, typically from the Western social justice traditions. Very valuable. But in some ways, they're in tension with Buddhist practice, right? And so it takes a, you know, something that we've done in a lot of these programs, it takes a kind of somewhat uh, um, <clears throat> long period of just having that sorting out occur. How do you, you know, and sorting out in dialogue, how does, and how do you have a mature integration? 
This is not, this is, I think we're still a ways uh, from that. But we can make use of the traditions I mentioned. Uh, I think the, the traditions of Gandhi and, and Kingian nonviolence are incredibly valuable. There's a very, there's a very close uh, correlation between some of their perspectives. And I've given, I gave a series of talks at Spirit Rock in the last few months and gave a day long, and, and we'll do a three-day retreat in, over Labor Day on the connections between Dharma practice and the nonviolence of Dr. King. <clears throat> it's a beautiful exploration. I've done that with a colleague named Kazu Haga, who is a, uh, a uh, Kingian nonviolence trainer who's really been mentored by most of the surviving colleagues of Dr. King. You know, people like uh, James Lawson, Bernard Lafayette, Diane Nash, maybe you know some of those names. <clears throat> And so, uh, very, very valuable. So I wanted to give a few, what I would think would be wisdom perspectives on how to see the current situation. I'll just give a few of these. We could say a lot more. Um, But these, for me, help to kind of guide how we approach the current situation. Some of these may have occurred to you. The first is that, in many ways, we've entered the end of normality. <laughs> you know, we may cling to normality or thinking, okay, I can just live my, live my life. And I see that in myself, right? We, but in some ways, things have really shifted, right? We, I think I knew, maybe you did too, that normality in a sense maybe of, okay, things are basically progressing. They're not perfect, but we're kind of going in a generally good direction and that maybe we'll get at some of these issues. Uh, And meanwhile, I can live my life of, maybe for some of us, relative privilege and comfort, right? A sense of normality. And I knew, and maybe you thought too, that this normality would end. But I thought it would be at a certain point from ecological issues, right? Maybe climate issues would get to some degree of severity. And I didn't think it was going to happen real soon, but I thought it would happen, right? And instead, we, I think, have the end of normality because of an election, right? And, um, you know, it's related to, to, again, the well-known list of the different crises that we have. And we know that probably all of these main social crises, the crisis of uh, climate disruption, of economic inequality, of course, getting way worse for the last 40 years. And uh, just of the very economic system we live with, you know, issues of racism and uh, sort of uh, polarization, you know, the level of immigrants and level of suffering in the world, the refugees and so forth, the wars, the um, you know, the threats of war, we still have nuclear weapons, you know, essentially, with the current administration, it seems like it's extremely unlikely that anything, any movement of a positive nature towards resolving these crises will happen. In fact, they will, there's a significant danger of massive regression, of course, in the case of climate, you know, at, at best, nothing will happen, and at worst, there'll be ways of um, actually making the collective response to climate issues in the world harder, right? 
right? And so we do have threat of uh, massive regression. You know, I didn't even mention, you know, the threats to democracy, right? Which, of course, are very significant, right? So we know those kinds of crises. Um, <clears throat> and they're, they're right there for us. Connected with this, I think there are limits to both some of the main forms of activism that have been dominant in so-called progressive circles. And there are also some limits to the way spiritual practice has been developed in the West, particularly Buddhist practice. And I'll be very brief here, but I think that the... Um, <clears throat> And this is where what I'm going to be pointing to is that we have sort of the best of the social justice traditions and best of Buddhist practice integrated in a kind of new model. You know, I heard one person call this uh, activism 2.0, mm -hmm. <laughs> or we call it uh, Buddhist practice 2.0. But there's some sort of an integration of them. We can call it spiritual activism. Some people use language like sacred activism. And I'll get back, because I don't mean by, I don't really want to point necessarily that everyone has to be an activist in the usual sense. But there are limits, I think, that a lot of people are increasingly seeing to the model of, self, of the self-righteous activist who demonizes the opponent and has an oppositional model that uh, is aim, aiming to defeat the opponent, uh, often not really knowing where one is going, but clearly knowing what one is against. Is this resonating some? Mm -hmm. Right, that these are sort of well-known. I've just, this, that could be a whole talk or a whole discussion. I've sort of cataloged some of the ways that there are limits, and we see a lot of those limits happening right now in some of the responses, right? And we see a lot of them right in my hometown of Berkeley, California. Right, we can, we can see some of, some of the, that kind of opposition. And there also are also are, are newer models coming that are um, really, I think, pointing to that kind of strong action that's grounded in spiritual perspectives and values. And we think we've seen a lot of that at Standing Rock, right? Some of you maybe have followed that. Anyone been there? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that there were some amazing stories of, uh, this, is, this is a story I heard, that when, when a woman who was a native woman, was being arrested by police. And one of the other women in the group began to sing a native prayer song. Soon the whole group was singing in unison. The police began to look uncomfortable, and one of them started crying. Probably a native officer, right? Another who looked, uh, also looked native started um, to take off his helmet in respect of the prayer. And what happened, uh, you know, was the, all of what happened in Standing Rock, in my understanding, was guided by elders who said every one of our actions has to be spiritually grounded in prayer and ceremony and so forth, and you will not go on the quote-unquote warpath. And so we have models there, and I think people are, are exploring them. You probably had a women's march here, right? Or in Albuquerque? Here, here. Here. And I imagine, I, I went to one in Oakland, had 100,000 people in Oakland. 
not much more than the population of Oakland, right? And it was amazing. It didn't. It was not oppositional. There were children there, probably like here, right? And it was a beautiful sort of. I like to think of it as a prefiguration of a new way of, of action, right? That's what I'm pointing to, right? And you experienced that here, right? So that. So there are limits to the old model, and there are new models emerging. I think the same thing with some of the ways that in so many Buddhist communities our practice has been primarily about finding a way to have a 20 or 30 minute sitting every day and try to bring it into one's life. Now I'm, and that of course is, can be really, really valuable, uh, but it can be limited, right? And I think we're being asked to have a broader view of practice in which we bring practice more and more more and more to all the parts of our lives, but including and including the social dimension and how we respond and have this um, view of practice, something like there's a great Tibetan yogi Shabkar, some of you may know him. He said, let my, uh, let my life and practice be one, all the parts of my life. There's also a way in which I think we're being challenged to uh, deal with what we might call the collective shadow, which is related to the crises. In other words, we've, we haven't looked carefully enough at the various bases of our issues. And I think one of the contributions of our practice, and I'll get to this, is that we actually can have a lot of practices where we connect mindfulness, compassion, loving kindness with working through the collective shadow. You know, and by the collective shadow, I mean some of those areas of our experience that we haven't fully looked at or addressed. You know, we could, so we could think, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, we haven't fully looked at the greed that is structured into our economic uh, system, right? Uh, we participate in that. We, we are following systems which to a significant extent are based on greed. And what I'm going to suggest, and you can listen to this as I go through a few of the manifestations of collective shadow, that is all getting really, really visible right now. Right? The greed of the economic system, right there. It's visible. It didn't used to be quite so visible. It was there. And it would have been there with Hillary Clinton in certain ways. But it's really manifest now. You know, we, in Buddhist language, we talk about greed, hatred, and delusion. We can see the greed more. We can see what we might call the hatred and the aversion more. You know, the racism, you know, the hostility towards Muslims, towards immigrants, and so forth, towards Latinos. We can see that more. I think we need, we're being asked to do our share of working with the collective shadow. And I'll come to that when I talk about meditation. And then... You know, there's also the element of delusion, which is not seen clearly. You know, the way that our, our lives sometimes, and certainly the culture, is so caught up with pop culture and the newest electronic devices and uh, not really seeing clearly these core issues, right? You know, partly because of our economic, our educational system, our media systems, right? There are elements of delusion, their lack of awareness. You know, and, and one could maintain, and maybe many, many of you have thought about this, that President Trump is a very clear 
manifestation of greed, hatred, and delusion. You think about it. And again, I'm not saying that, I mean, I think Hillary Clinton would have manifested some of those, but it's not as stark, right? It's not anywhere near as stark. Um, he really, you think of him, greed, okay? okay I do need I say more? You know, hatred in the ways that I've mentioned, and delusion, right? I mean, it's, it's breathtaking sometimes, right? right? Refusal to look, you know, you know, what, uh, alternative facts or alternate facts, you know, it's one, um, this is delusion, right? This is delusion. And so, you know, and I heard one person who said, well, when you look to the Christian model, he also fully manifests the seven deadly sins, <laughs> which are lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, right? This is the collective shadow. Right? This is the collective, it's manifesting right before our eyes. It was always there, but now it's big and right there. That's the gift. That means that we can see it and we have to deal with it. Again, uh, I think some things would have developed well with Hillary Clinton. We wouldn't have been asked to, to deal with this. We would have kept our eyes closed. Would have kept our eyes. Some maybe would have opened. I mean, the climate is, is that's a lot of people are really committed around that. But maybe some of the others, maybe not so much. So, yeah, I would say from a certain perspective, the uh, impact of the election could be seen from an evolutionary point of view as a kick in the rear end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we should accept it as that, <laughs> right? And so um, now I want to talk about meditation. So if that, those are some I could, you know, I could, we could do what? We could do a week on this topic, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be brief and then have time for discussion. From the point of view of meditation, moving to that, and this is more, from now, I'll, I'll be more pointing to how do we actually respond? What kind of meditations are helpful? And of course, the traditional meaning of meditation is particularly divided into concentration training and insight training. That's in the, in the Theravada tradition. You know, and uh, all of this is for the aim of having liberating insight. And that traditional training is still incredibly relevant Right? Some, I had the phrase come to my mind uh, a few weeks ago that what we need is double awakening. We need to accelerate our individual practice because only that's going to give us the resources and the understanding to really respond in a profound way. So we need to really accelerate the traditional training, but we also need to bring in the training that helps us for a collective awakening. So that's a lot. That's a lot being asked of us. Right? And I think many of us feel that something more is being asked of us right now. It's not business as usual, right? You know? and, um, and so I want to mention just a few other ways that uh, our, our meditation practice is very relevant to our times. And I, I would say that, so I'll give a few guidelines that I have found useful. And some of this has come out of having discussions, every retreat that I've been, that I've offered, been part of since the election, actually at first this came from, from retreatants, they wanted to have some guidance in terms of how to come back to the world, right? They didn't just want to 
have this wonderful retreat experience, hopefully, <laughs> and then return. And so they actually asked me and I, and the, at first. And, and so I, I worked out ways of doing that that were always optional and that had the intention of giving some guidelines and principles without sort of derailing the level of retreat depth and so forth. And I think we did pretty well with that. So I've probably done it six or seven times since November. And so some of, some of what I've uh, say now what comes out of what I've learned there. <clears throat> so a few principles. First, ground everything in community. Really crucial. Watch out for being isolated. That's not going to work. You have to be really connected. Ground everything in community. I remember uh, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, I did a dialogue with Joanna Macy, uh, which we published. And she spoke at that time of the importance of having rough weather networks. That's what she talked about. Rough weather networks, which means groups of people, communities that can be there when the times are harder. We need that. Very crucial. A really fundamental principle is, I think, you know, it's the core wisdom teaching and practice of all of Buddhist practice, and that's non-reactivity. We need to cultivate non-reactivity to a high degree. And the teaching that most expresses this teaching of non-reactivity is the teaching of the two arrows, which is almost my favorite teaching of the Buddha. For me, it's a more concise and even accurate way of talking about the Four Noble Truths in the way that I was talking about earlier in terms of reactivity. And some of you probably, how many of you know the teaching of the two arrows? No, not so many. Okay, very good. <laughs> so it goes like this. The Buddha was talking with his practitioners and he said, everyone experiences at times the unpleasant. What distinguishes a practitioner from a non-practitioner? They did not answer his question, so he, as was often the case, responded to his own question. <laughs> he, he, he went on like this. He said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. We might say that sometimes we have painful bodily experiences. Sometimes we have uh, difficult emotions, difficult emotional experiences, difficult interactions. Sometimes we're treated unfairly, etc. Right? Everyone has those Things happen at times, whether you are a practitioner or a non-practitioner. What's the distinction then between a practitioner and a non-practitioner? The non-practitioner tends, because of the presence of the unpleasant, which the Buddha called the first arrow. It's as, we are, as if we are shot by an arrow, the arrow of the unpleasant. The non-practitioner, by the way, that means us when we're not practicing. Okay, just to be clear. <laughs> okay, the non-practitioner, because of being shot by the first arrow, tends to shoot a second arrow as if that would help. And so, we, when there is physical discomfort, we will tense around it. Some doctors say that as much as 80% of chronic pain, at least some forms of chronic pain, not all of them, some, some forms of chronic pain, as much as 80%, isn't the original sensation, it's the reaction. We know that most clearly with emotional reactions, right? We can have something happen for 10 seconds and we emotionally react for the next two weeks. Mm -hmm. We can be treated unfairly and we react 
maybe by treating someone else unfairly. Someone can say something to us with a mean, mean tone, and I react right back with a mean tone to that person. All those reactions are called the second arrow. Right? What the practitioner learns to do is not to shoot the second arrow. That's the core of our training. And we do that partly by learning how to be with the unpleasant without reaction. Not always easy. You know, we hang out sometimes with sadness or anger and we, we suspend action. <clears throat> or we learn how to be, when it's appropriate, with difficult sensations. At least learn how not to be automatically reactive when, there, when there's some, something unpleasant. And partly, we learn to be mindful of when we're tending to be reactive. That's a huge part of our practice is to track our own reactivity, right? Huge, right? Just to notice it with our mindfulness. And so this is going to be a huge... I'm saying huge a lot. Let's see. If I'm, you know. <laughs> okay, no comment. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not pronouncing it correctly. That, that's true. I, pronouncing it the way I learned it. But anyway, you anyway. But the uh, <laughs> but the teach that teaching is a profound one, isn't it? That's a, that's a guideline for activism. That's a guideline for any responses we make, and we want to track that carefully because we're going to be reactive. We want to really watch that and over and over again work with that. We want to develop the heart practices. We want to develop compassion and loving kindness, forgiveness, joy. Empathy is really crucial now. Can I be empathic towards the marginalized? Right? Huge practice. You know, and it's a practice which I teach a lot in the context of speech practice. There's some very beautiful empathy practice. I think I'll bring, you know, a lot of what I'll do on Saturday is more related to the second dimension of meditative training. You know, and how we work in that way. I, you know, I'll, I'll be, we'll be exploring a lot of this. I'll probably explore empathy practice as one of the practices. <clears throat> so, and then we also, I'll just mention one other area. We also very much, you know, have to practice with all those difficult emotions and thoughts that were mentioned, you know, at the beginning. Fear, denial, sadness, grief, um, you know, uh, scary scenarios, negative stories, right? We want to track all those. And our practice is particularly valuable. And this is where, think of what it would be like if a large percentage of the activists would actually undergo meditative training and be able to work in all the ways I just mentioned. Everything would change, wouldn't it? Or at least a percentage of them, right? I think that that's my vision. I think that's very possible. You know, and that means that Maybe we become meditation teachers with activist groups, right? Or we help help with that in some ways. The last area I just want to finish with, I think I'm going to be a little briefer here and maybe bring more of this in next time. You know, this last area is that of ethics. And we can think of it as how do we maintain integrity? You know, how do we maintain integrity? Ethics is really about living according to our values, in all of our actions, it's sometimes said, even when no one is watching. 
That's integrity, right? <laughs> that, that there's something deep in our being that uh, isn't, is dedicated to integrity. And that's, that's a whole practice in itself. And of course, the traditional meaning of living ethically was to follow the familiar guidelines that we sometimes take in community, that we bring up in retreats to essentially live with the guidelines of non-harming, not to, not to kill, not to harm, not to steal, and to be very careful with energies which can sometimes be harmful, sexuality, speech, intoxicants, substances which shift consciousness. That's the traditional meaning. <clears throat> and interestingly, there was very much a social meaning historically for the ethics. You know, it wasn't dominant, but in some of the research I, that, I, that I've done, I found passages where, for example, this is one from the Buddha, from the Sutta Nipata, where the Buddha says, let one not destroy life, nor cause others to destroy life, and also not approve of others killing. See, so it's not just about doing it oneself, but it's also about causing others and approving. That seems to me to bring in some of the social dimension. You know, maybe we know that more from some of Thich Nhat Hanh's work, right? Thich Nhat Hanh has really uh, brought the ethical guidelines into the social sphere. So you may know this passage from his main book on living ethically. He says, I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. And listen to this one. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking, in my way of life. Right? Not to let others kill. What does that mean? If we take that on as a commitment. That's pretty strong, isn't it? That has a lot of implications. So the ethical guidelines actually go a long way if we really want to be committed to them. They can guide our practice in the world. And they're extremely challenging, aren't they? If, you, if, you, if we're really committed to non-harming, what does that mean? Yeah. <clears throat> a few other principles of action. It has to be sustainable for the long haul. That's why, again, having the meditative background, it's such a virtue, right? Having really cycles, I would say, of in and out. Being more active, being more restorative. I think that's very, very crucial. That was the core principle of all the trainings I did. You know, it's, it's going back and forth between inner training and uh, nurturance, restoration, and, and acting. Really crucial. And I think I'll just close with two other pieces of this. Um, this is from Joanna Macy. And I think this is really key because all of this is really pointing to each of us to listen to our own inner voices for how we should act. And this isn't really saying that there's a one-size-fit-all way to be an activist or something like this. I don't think that's helpful, right? And she talked about there being a great turning that's possible. And she said it happened in three ways. And each of us may be more called to one of these. So, and so the first 
is um, she calls holding actions to prevent further damage. And that's the traditional province of activism, stopping bad things from happening, right? That's one of three ways that significant change occurs, right? And some are, of us are called to that a lot. Some of us are called to that occasionally, right? The second is um, transforming our core institutions so that they are more sustainable, more just, more following our values, right? And so that could mean I'm really committed to developing alternative forms of agriculture or different kinds of education or different kinds of psychotherapy or medical care or all of these things, right? And many of you are probably have devoted your lives to these areas. The key is going to be that we connect the dots, that we connect the transforming the institutions with the holding actions, with the understanding of what's happening. That's what I have found when I've worked with activists and people interested in this. They're very relieved when they find, I don't have to just be on the front lines all the time. Mm -hmm. The key is to make the connections between these three ways that things change. The third is transforming consciousness, right? So someone who is a meditation teacher can transform consciousness, but can we do so within the horizon of the larger challenges of the world? Can we make connections between these three and then maybe, and, and see where you're called? And the last one is really, in a way, making the same point. This is listening to our, listening to our inner voices, listening to what calls us. And this is very nicely expressed in a discussion that the African-American theologian and activist Howard Thurman had with a young man. Howard Thurman, how many of you know of Howard Thurman? Mm -hmm. He lived until uh, about 1980 or so. He was a mystic and an activist. He taught at Howard, he taught at Boston University. I don't think he taught Dr. King. King, King went to Boston University. I don't think he taught him, but he was certainly uh, influential. And he talked with a young man, probably in his 20s, near the end of his life. And the young man wasn't sure what to do with his life. And um, Howard Thurman had started, he had moved to uh, the San Francisco area towards the end of his life, and he helped start the first interracial uh, Christian church in the Bay Area. He was very involved with that and other projects. So this young man asked him, what should I do? <laughs> You know, do people ask you that sometimes? Young people? Younger people? Uh, they ask me that sometimes. And Howard Thurman answered in this way, and I'll close with his, his response, and we can then have some discussion. He closed by saying, don't ask what the world needs. So it's a very interesting way for me to end this talk, right? <laughs> and for Howard Thurman to respond, because he was a lifelong activist, all sorts of issues, including racial issues. Don't ask what the world needs. Rather, ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Thank you. So we have some time for any questions or uh, reflections, uh, comments, observations.
try to be a little bit on the brief side so that we can have uh, as much time as possible for, for a number of people. Please. And I'll, should I repeat the questions or comments? Yeah. Um, I'll see if I can talk loud enough. Okay. Um, one of the thoughts I had as you were talking about the lack of uh, teachings of the Buddha related yeah. to social yeah. commentary, and I thought a lot of what he taught was by example. Yeah. I was thinking about how the Buddhist Sangha, in the early days at least, accepted women. That's right. And on an equal basis, accepted people of lower caste systems on an equal basis with the high caste. Yeah. His, his teaching that spiritual advancement, spiritual quality, has nothing to do with how you were born. Exactly, or yeah. Or being born into the right Brahmin family. Yeah. But had to do with how you did your work. Yeah. How you did your practice. So I think there's a lot in the example of the Buddha that we can That's, a, that's a great, great point and important one to kind of complement what I was saying, that the... Uh, um, the Sangha, in certain ways, was revolutionary. And in terms of bringing in women, in terms of bringing in people from the lower castes, in terms of really um, offering a place for everyone, in terms of certain kinds of equality, and so forth. So it really, even though they weren't uh, directly trying to influence the outer world, that wasn't a part of the teachings and practice. They were certainly making a statement which could be heard. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, please. Yeah. Um, I want to hear more about community because yeah. we've been talking a lot about finding refuge, which is in, in essence finding refuge yeah. in a community of people that will support us when times get hard or yeah. will be honest or straight with us. But my issue is that it's very hard for me to develop community outside of like this Sangha. Yeah. And I don't have a lot of access to different kinds of communities. You know, to you know, to low-income folk, or, or yeah. I, I just don't have access to it. So I'm mm -hmm. trying to find ways in the Santa Fe community yeah. to to penetrate those, so that I have different kinds of communities, not just a yeah, yeah. singular mindset. Like it's like yeah. mind think. Yeah, thank you. It's a lot of important points there. My main point actually was more in terms of not being isolated, and so my, you know, I think you're bringing up other points, but the my main point was just to see that one is grounded in some community, mm -hmm. and that could be this community. And, um, and yet you're pointing, so I was thinking of that grounding community more as a way of having nurturance, support, mm -hmm. uh, sustenance. And you're pointing to different um, needs, really, and different issues, such as having a way to have more collaboration and connection across different communities, really vital. Mm -hmm. What, you know, though, I mean, there, we could spend the rest of the time just on that, but I think it's really crucial. What come, comes to mind is maybe choose one issue area, and there should be groups with most of the major issues in this area, and there should be, at least in some of the groups, uh, some degree of cross-section, certainly non-Buddhist, you know, so maybe it's climate issues or maybe it's, you know, I don't know, issues related to uh, uh, undocumented, but choose one issue and just be with the groups there. And that'll, that, that's, that's a start, right? That's my, that was what first came to mind, kind of obvious, but that's, 
you know, that, that would, uh, but, but have the home community as well, which would be more like-minded people, which, it, which is important. Okay. Maybe we can continue that, that discussion on Saturday or, or next week as well. Yeah. I want to remember that. <clears throat> Oh, please, yeah. After the election, I wandered around looking for groups and, um, you know, trying different things out. And I just, I, I joined Indivisible, mm -hmm. which uh, I was at there this morning. And I just love the people there. I mean, I just love going there. They are so mm. focused and... Um, they really, really helped me out just being part of them. Yeah. Yeah, so the different groups, and I would imagine over time as they get to know you, they might be drawn, if they're not already meditators, maybe to, if you talk about how this is a resource for you, they might be interested. I, I have found, for example, when I was connected with a graduate school, um, Saybrook, um, we had difficulties at times of communication, you know, including and sometimes especially on email. And there was a committee developed to try to have some recommendations for improving our communication. And I was on that committee. And again, this is, you know, just being sharing, not being dogmatic or self-righteous about anything as much as possible. And I shared some of the guidelines of wise speech from the teachings of the Buddha and the entire committee said, we want those. <laughs> and the committee recommended, and we uh, followed through on having those wise speech guidelines put on poster board for every meeting that we had wow. and, um, and read and discussed briefly, and they asked me to do it, at the beginning of every meeting. Right? And so this is, you know, this is part of how that, that um, what, that, change of the paradigm occurs, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because again, without being, what, uh, proselytizing or dogmatic, and we have to check our, any remaining tendencies towards those things. <laughs> right. Yeah, thank you. Please, yeah. Um, uh, kind of a, an opposite sort of thing that's happened for me in, after the election, after 9-11 it happened too is just seeing um, kind people yeah. so much more vividly and with so much more yeah. emotion and appreciation than I do normally yeah. you know, when everything seems kind of flat. And um, on one hand, I think it's sort, <clears throat> sort of unfortunate that you have to have that extreme yeah. to see the brightness of yeah. goodness. But It works like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that, that, again, that's that sense of, you know, I, I, what came to mind just now is the, um, the, the Chinese figure for crises, crisis, some of you know, is very close to the figure for opportunity. Mm -hmm. It talks about that in the I Ching, you know, and there is that way that, and I think we know that if we stay Basically, really difficult and challenging situations can take us in two directions. Mm -hmm. Towards more suffering or towards great learning. Mm -hmm. every, every challenge of a great nature, every, you can look to the social situation, 
the danger is of that of things getting significantly worse. And also, there is the tremendous opportunity to have it be a powerful collective learning experience. That's what we want, of course. We want option two, <laughs> right? But that's that's always the case, and it's really, and you know, I think has been a theme here that without what's happened, we actually would have still been somewhat asleep. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so this is saying, you know, we have to wake up. Right? If we don't wake up, the you know democracy could be gone pretty quickly. You know, and maybe like you, I'm reading a lot of the studies of how societies move from being democratic to being authoritarian. Right? How that how that's happened historically, those are important uh, to know. You know, because there's always that near the beginning, it's always the time for intervention. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. others, others, please. Time for maybe one or two more? Yeah. Um, one thing I'm aware has happened for me in an effort to um, stay focused on the positive. Yeah. I keep hearing my mother say, when you feel terrible like crap, help somebody else. Yeah. And something that's really served me in these weeks, many weeks since the election, um, has been to be of service. Right, right. And, um, you know, just make an extra effort to help a young family I know with a new baby and a two and a half year old. Yeah. Just, just do something with my hands and yeah. my time. Well. Or uh, help a neighbor out that doesn't have a car. Mm-hmm. Or those kinds of things. And I've noticed that it's really helped, um, I've just felt nourished. And yeah, it helps. It helps me stay yeah. in the positive. That's beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How many people have found yourself doing something similar? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great to see. And no, no pressure on those who didn't raise their hands. <laughs> 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 maybe you were, maybe you were doing it but didn't want to advertise it. Right. We'll assume that. <laughs> um, but that's it's beautiful. It's really like this is really like seeing what sustains us, right? And this is something that you know that actually. Knowing, um, you know, it, it's really something we we learn from Buddhist practice, which is that every moment matters, right? whether it seems big or whether it seems small. Just that bringing of uh, mindfulness of kindness to each moment is both beneficial to other, and kind of paradoxically, it's extremely nourishing to us. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Right? And that's partly why spiritual practice is necessary for anyone who's working with the responding to the situation, because spiritual practice, at least in the long run, is inherently restorative. It's inherently nourishing. You know, we know that in a given moment it may not feel like that, but over the long haul it is. And so that's why I say like redouble the efforts to practice both individually and then explore what it means collectively. Yeah. Time for one more and then we'll then we'll we'll end. Please. Yeah. What you said just reminded me of one of my favorite Zen sayings from one of the old Zen yeah. teachers. The purpose of Dharma is an appropriate response. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. That's beautiful, yeah. Um, I forget that teacher's name, but I think it was from about the 10th century. Somewhere way back. Yes, maybe maybe earlier. 
You know, and mm. it's a beautiful story. This teacher was asked, you know, what is the essence of Dharma? And you might have, we, they might have expected some account of the nature of enlightenment or the total interpenetration of inner and outer, you know, or the blinding lights that come when you actually see <laughs> your deep nature. But he said, what is the essence of Dharma? Appropriate response. Very simple, always in the moment, right? So thank you for that. It's kind of a nice way to end, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Appropriate response. Repeat that every morning. <laughs> right? And it's nice. We kind of do a little bit of blending of Zen practice and insight practice here, right? <laughs> yeah, so great. So um, this was part one. And I actually had some stuff I didn't use tonight. And uh, we'll have the day long. On Saturday, I'm intending for that to be, certain, you know, some peri- you know, quite a number of periods of silent practice, along with some uh, experiential work related to the some of the themes that I've talked about, including you know, some of the meditative themes and principles that I mentioned tonight, and uh, that'll you know that's Saturday, and there'll be some group practices as well. So I'm. You know, there'll be some short talks, but most of it will be silent practice and group practice, some of which will involve some talking, but there'll be interactive practices. And then uh, I come back uh, in a week for part two. Uh, Tomorrow night, I guess at the casita, we have a discussion if people want to come about anything brought up tonight or anything else on your mind for that matter. And then we have another one the following Monday, also at the Casita. Those are the discussion groups related to the themes from, from tonight. And again, I think it's totally relevant if you have a, a formal meditation practice question or inquiry. Those would be entirely appropriate, you know, in these discussion groups, right? You know, it's really whatever is there for you. It doesn't have to be related to the, just to the themes of the talk. Anything that's on your mind, you know, what's equanimity? <laughs> you know, or uh, what's the difference between compassion and empathy? <laughs> okay, so um, great, great to be here again. And uh, it was, it was, uh, I actually developed most of this talk today, you know, at the Casita. It was really fun to be working on it and knowing it was going to be, I was going to offer it. A lot of it came intuitively. I, I didn't have, uh, last night, any sense of the core structure of the talk, you know, in terms of wisdom, meditation, and ethics, and suddenly, and I think it it helps. It also helps keep things kind of simple, right, so you can frame it. So it's great to be here, and it's great to feel like uh, my own creative energy is being awaken further by being able to be here. So uh, let's is it usually close with a little bit of metta or just with a dedication of merit or as I see fit? Whatever you want. Yeah, okay. So let's just uh, go inside just for a moment <clears throat> and bring to mind the learning or insights that might have come tonight may have had to do with the theme of the talk, but maybe not. Maybe it was something, maybe some unresolved issue and your life suddenly got illuminated, having nothing to do with the talk. See what was there for you that was important. 
And then see if there's an intention with which you are leaving tonight of any kind. Then we close with the very traditional dedication of merit. May the benefits of our practice be there for ourselves, be there for those in our lives. May the benefits of our practice ultimately be offered to all beings, always remembering that all beings includes ourselves. <clears throat> Thank you again, and um, to be continued. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.